Well, thank that was nice, but it's really it's cool for me, not for you. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, my name is Rick, and I I, uh, I get to be married to Marvelee, and uh, that's been for you know we're coming up on our fourth decade here, and uh, and uh, I'm basically I'm her trophy husband uh, is what's happening. <laughs> And you might wonder, what trophy? And I always think, uh, uh, most improved. Did you ever get one of those? <laughs> most improved, that means like you sucked a little bit less this year than last year. So that's definitely the trophy she got with me. Um, but we are from Seattle. You know, when you're traveling somewhere, it's funny how you always keep an eye on home. You know, you're, you know you're, here we are at Huntington Beach, beautiful place and everything. But I don't know if you heard, but yesterday in Seattle, 65 mile an hour winds, 200,000 people without power. Uh, just, you know, chaos, havoc, you know, the bridges that, that span the city are all closed, you know, waves going everywhere. And of course, we're tweeting pictures of the sunset, you know, last night. So just to kind of bug people. And it's great. Uh, what a remarkable part of the world this is. And I know that you, you already know that, but sometimes you, you know, when you, you, you're kind of always here, you, you sort of go to sleep to that. But it was just, just so cool to be here. I saw people yesterday, like, I mean, seriously, we were walking down uh, uh, last night, you know, during the sunset time, and I saw people biking, surfing, swimming, jogging, playing volleyball, um, and, and doing all kinds of stuff. And I just wanted to say, on behalf of your cardiovascular system, thank you. Uh, way to go. Way to go, Huntington Beach. Because, in, see, in Seattle... You know, we have a lot of fun. We, you know, we do this like, pretty amazing place, you know, in terms of our environment. But November 1, it's over. Like, we're not outside anymore. You know, from November 1st till, like, June, it's more like, you know, we eat. And then after that, after we get up from eating, we try to find a more comfortable chair. You know, so it's a, you know, but you people are amazing. You're in shape. You're inspiring us. You're like this physically fit bunch of people. And uh, technically, um, you're in shape, and I'm just... I, I'm a shape, you know, so that's the, that's just different. And I found out what my shape is. I asked my wife, what's my shape? And she said trapezoid, you know, which is a, it's a convex quadrilateral, you know, convex. And it's also on its way to triangle, I think. But, um, but, but the thing is that seriously, even though, um, I'm not like super, you know, exercise oriented or aerobically inclined, um, uh, but I do, I, you know, I do yoga now and then. I, I, I've got maybe five, six seconds of, you know, the uh, one position before I fall over. And then, uh, but what happens is uh, we all try to, you know, do what we can to stay healthy, especially when it comes to eating. I love uh, uh, eating and, uh, and making food to eat. So when you go to the grocery store, it's been fun for me to, like, look around and sort of notice things in the store. There's a lot of marketing for, like, health-conscious folks. Like I saw the other day in the frozen vegetable section, it said no cholesterol on, on the package. And I was thinking, no kidding, because, you know, cholesterol is animal fat, and these are vegetables. So, you know, but they're, they're marketing, you know, oh, I'll take that, no cholesterol in those vegetables, you know, because they're trying to get us, you know, and everything is like low this and, you know, better for you and whatever. So people are like reading all the labels and everything, and I got to give some props to the water people. You know, the water section in our stores just keeps expanding. I mean, I, I still remember, you know, whatever, a decade ago, I saw somebody drinking a bottle of water, and I thought, <laughs> somebody just bought water. I mean, we have it free at our house, you know, and now, of course, you know, we all, there's just water, you know, bottled water's everywhere, and it's not, it's hard to find just bottled water almost because it's, there's so many kinds of water, flavored water, vitamin water, enhanced water, spring water, distilled water, purified water, artesian water, mineral water, sparkling water, I mean, you know, the water section's just taken over, and the other day I saw one that I loved, it said, oxygenated water, and I thought, how did they get oxygen in water? That is tricky. <laughs> and then I started wondering how much oxygen we really need in our water because 
we have this really efficient oxygen gathering technique called breathing, you know, which uh, <laughs> is already in place. I'm not sure, you know, we really need oxygen and water so our gills will absorb something, you know. Uh, um, but I think it's funny. And so I, I, when I walk around the store, I'm kind of uh, looking at all these products. And the one product that still amazes me, and I, I have to check for it every time I'm there, I, it's... It just amazes me that it's still in the store for, you know, years and years and years. There it is in the dairy section. I can't believe it's not butter. I mean, what an incredible product. First of all, what a way to market something, what it's not. I can't believe it's not butter. Now, if they, if they left the I can't believe part out, I don't think it would sell. It just If it just said, not butter, you know. No, it has to be like, I can't believe it. Like, I can't believe it's not butter. It's so butter-like. And have you ever looked at it? Next time you go to the store, grab one of those vats, you know, and peel the top off. You can't believe it's not butter. Are you serious? Because I can't believe it's not spackle or uh, like latex paint or something. It's just this big polymer swirl, you know. And, uh, and so, but here is the thing. I started thinking about how they market that. It's just amazing to me because isn't every single item in the grocery store except butter not butter? I mean, couldn't the bread be, we're not butter either. I mean, everything... And the whole store is not butter except butter. And now they had this, this new one out, like, I can't believe it's not butter light. And I'm thinking, how can you be less than what you're not, you know? And then I start thinking, well, you know, there's the, uh, you know, there's the healthcare website. So, you know, I mean, that's a little bit less than what it's not. But, uh, you know, there, that's, technically, that's the definition of a black hole, you know, less than what it's not, negative gravity. So watch out for that container, you know, you could get, you know, disappear, but... Here's the thing that I believe that um, I've actually used that same thing. I've said that same thing to myself, and I think all of us have. We live in a part of the world that really does emphasize what we're not. That's part of sort of what we're exposed to. You know, we define ourselves by what we're not. I can't believe I'm not smarter can't believe I'm not taller, I'm not better, I'm not thinner, I'm not richer, I can't believe I'm not. Always defining ourselves by what we're not. And essentially we're saying to ourselves, I can't believe I'm not better, instead of butter. And, you know, and because it's easy to see what we're not. That's kind of the default setting of our brains. And that's why uh, the Bible actually says, in a, a very, you know, sort of noteworthy guy in the Bible named Peter, who's a, an apostle and, you know, Whenever you tell a joke about St. Peter at the heavenly gates, I mean, this is the big guy, you know, and he was the, uh, the, the father of the early church, and he wrote a letter to all Christians who would follow, including any of us who are Christians, and he said this, yeah, sure, we used to think about what we're not. We, we said we were not, like, that was the way we defined ourselves. Once we were not a people, that's the way he said it, but now we are a people. He said, yeah, once we were, we were not involved in community, uh, you know, we, we had not developed the spiritual awareness. We were a lot of things that we're not. But once we understand what God has done, then we start to base our identity on what we are, not on what we're not. And so some of you are students of the Bible. You know, you've read the Bible a bit. Um, others of us just watched the miniseries on the His- History Channel. You know, that's as far as we've gone. But if, just so you know, the, the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time on what we're not. It spends a lot of time on what we are. And there's all kinds of expressions. Some of them are kind of old-fashioned expressions or Middle Eastern expressions, and, you know, so they take a little translation. But the Bible says that we are, okay? We are sons and daughters. It uses that family picture. We're sons and daughters of God. It talks about we are more than conquerors. And that's in a culture where there was, 
you know, like a lot of conquering and, you know, and it says, no, we're more than that. It says we are Christ's ambassadors. We are heirs and joined heirs with God. And that's in a culture where inheritance was everything. That's the only way, you know, that you, you pass the farm along. And so they use a lot of these pictures about what we are. We are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. So all these expressions. So this morning, I just wanted to spend a few minutes and take one of those we are expressions and sort of expand on it or, you know, kind of examine it. And it comes from a letter that we have in the new part of the Bible. Uh, Most of us know there's like two parts of the Bible. There's the old part and the new part. The old part's primarily about a country named Israel, and the new part is primarily about an Israeli guy named Jesus. So they kind of go together. But in the, in the new part, there's a bunch of letters. And it would be like as if uh, Caleb wrote a letter back to the church at Huntington Beach, you know, and he's on a trip and he wrote back and encouraged us. And, and well, Pastor Paul wrote letters to a lot of churches. And we have a letter to a church in a place called Ephesus. And so it's called the letter to the Ephesian people. And Ephesus was such an amazing place, very much like Huntington Beach. It was, this city was, in fact, at the time of the writing, the city was 105 years old. And so there's, you know, they had enough time to develop an incredible civic life. We know that Ephesus was a commercial center, like Huntington Beach. We know that it was a multicultural area, intergenerational. We know that it was a you know, tourist destination. Uh, we know that they were highly literate, very intelligent people. And we know that they had developed uh, the civic life to the point that they had uh, public art. You know, whenever you look at the development of a, of a city, whenever you start to have public art, it sort of displays the maturity, uh, you know, of a particular group of people. And we already know that if you want to go to the Louvre in Paris, the great museum there, there's a whole section on ancient Ephesus and all the public art that's there. So we know these people were artistic, which is, you know, a very sort of like uh, advanced kind of development in a civic uh, community. And so, it's, so this is a letter that we can relate to because, you know, it's a lot like, you know, what's happening around us. And so Paul, because he knew these people, he gives them this picture and he tells them, uh, he, he paints an artistic example of what we are. He starts um, by actually saying, you know, kind of teeing it up by saying, it's by grace that we're saved. And that's why, the, if you have your little notes there, you can see what I titled these notes was, this, I asked this question, what's your favorite color between 1 and 10? You see, this is what it's like to talk about grace in a culture that is really not positioned toward grace. And so our culture is very much um, legalistic. And yet here comes Paul with this expression like, it's grace. We didn't do anything to earn what God gave us. There's no transaction happening. You know, this this is not a business deal where we, you know, did something in order to get something. He says, no, it's by grace you were saved. That doesn't fit in our brain. We're Westerners. We're capitalists. We're, you know, we, we, we understand transaction, man. We're consumers. I mean, you know, we, we're highly marketed uh, individuals. In fact, it's very interesting that Dorothy Sayers, who's a great 19th century Christian apologist, she was like, she wrote about Christianity. She was a friend of uh, J.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, like some of these great writers. And we have her writings, and she was the one who said this, that there's two words never found in the Bible. And if you want to go home, you can Google this. But she says, uh, there's two words never found in the Bible. And they're the words problem and solution. And you know, those are the two words I hear most often when when people want to talk to me. Hey, you know, hey, Pastor Rick, let's have a coffee. I want to talk to you. Sure, what's up going? What's going on? You know, I got a problem. You know, and I need to find a solution. You turn on the TV and they go, economic problem. 
you know, a political problem, security problem. You know, we talk to people, we got a marriage problem, you know, I got a financial problem, and we're all looking for solutions. And we have this kind of idea that, you know, problems, you know, need solutions, and then, you know, the result will be happiness, and that's what we're pursuing and all that. And it's all very much a giant equation because we are living in a mathematic part of the world, at a mathematic time in the world. And actually, it's not anything new. Um, Jesus showed up at one of the most mathematic times in the world where legalism, everybody was keeping score and keeping track, and, you know, they had it, you know, they, and they, they painted the picture of God as like this big scorekeeping uh, you know, sort of, you know, spiritual scorekeeper who was trying to figure out, you know, if you're messing up or not. And so then Paul says, okay, look, it's by grace you were saved. Has nothing to do with math. Why are problem and solution not found in the Bible? Because problem and solution are math words, and this is an art book. The Bible does not say, in the beginning, God calculated the heavens and the earth. What's it say? Created. David does not say in Psalm 51, calculate in me a clean heart, O God. What he says is, create in me. The, the Bible is talking about creation. It's talking about God shaping, not solving. And so if you're here today, and you, you came with this mindset like, I'm a problem. I've come here so God will solve me. You'll be highly disappointed. God is not here to solve you. He's here to shape you. He's here to create something new in your life. And this is what Paul is saying. That's why he says to the people in Ephesus and to us today, in chapter 2 and verse 10, you and I are God's work of art, created in Christ Jesus. Not calculated, but created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, here's the thing. Uh, depending on what kind of you know, translation you have of the original Greek words in the Bible here, that work, you know, uh, handiwork. You see that word up there? It says, you, we are God's handiwork. That's translated, we are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece. It, the, the word handiwork there actually means the product of an artist or the, the, the display or the outcome of an artistic endeavor, the expression of an artist. So, for instance, if the artist is a writer, then that artist's expression could be a poem or a novel. If the artist is a painter, then that expression could be a landscape. Right? If the artist is a sculptor, then that expression could be a statue. And the Bible says, you and I are God's work of art. God is the artist, and we are the expression of God's work. We are God's work of art. And it's really interesting because um, that runs totally counter you know, to the way we would think by default that we are. And you know, we think of ourselves more as God's uh, you know, God's problem to solve, or, you know, like, you know, we're just here to, you know, maybe God could save us from stuff, you know, and, like, keep us from, you know, destroying ourselves. And, and instead of realizing that we're actually God's expression. Now, I see this a lot when it comes to, um, you know, you might say, well, no, hey, I like that. I'm God's work of art. I got it. Good, you know. But then I watch people, and I watch myself, and I realize, you know what? We don't really get it. And here's why. Art is valued differently Okay, art is not valued the same way as objects are valued. Like how many of us have sold or purchased in our life a car or a house? Right? We all know how that happens. And what do you if you want to know how much the car is worth, your car is worth, you you know you can just look it up online, you know, or they have books and you go like it's this year of the car, it's this color of car, it has this many miles, it's worth a dollar. You know? <laughs> but then you could all of a sudden start adding all this artistic stuff to the value. 
I fell in love in that car. I took our children to their first day of school in that car. This is and so all you're starting to add all these sentimental values, right? Doesn't matter. That's art, man. This is like this is math. This is a mathematic exercise. And what we do is we value objects based on their comps or their comparable value. And the truth is, whenever we compare ourselves to one another, we are objectifying each other. Whenever I compare myself to you, your house to my house, my car to your car, my W-2 to your W-2, my accomplishments to your accomplishments, my resume to your resume, we are actually involved in a mathematic exercise of turning each other into objects. And the Bible says, don't do it. You are not an object. You are God's work of art. And art is not valued based on comps or market value. Have you ever seen a work of art that's transferred, ownership is transferred from a work of art? What do they do? Do they say, well, the Venus de Milo, let's see, let's find a comp for that. Maybe the, uh, you know, Mona Lisa. No, they don't do that. How do they, how do they uh, establish the value of a work of art? Huh? It's not a market value. It's not a comparable value. It's called an established value. An established value isn't, you know, comparing what everything else sold for and saying, you know, that's what it's worth. Established value means this. It's worth whatever someone will pay. And the only way you can... You can establish a value is at an auction. So you've seen the art, you've seen art auctions, right? Like they'll bring a painting out and they'll say, I don't know, this could be worth a million dollars. And somebody in the back goes, 10 million. And they go, okay, there, there you go. And you say, well, I didn't think it was worth 10 million. Well, it is to him. You know, John F. Kennedy had a golf, leather golf bag that was just beat up. Zippers didn't work. Half the clubs rusted. Just a beater set. Like you'd go to a garage sale, five bucks, right? Guess what it sold for? $100,000. Because the person who bought it said, you know what, that's a piece of history. You know, and to me, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to place that kind of value on it. And it was just like, wow, that's art. Okay? Here's what the Bible says. That there has been an auction for your soul and mine, and that God outbid every bidder. That's what theologians say. Why would God send his only son to die on the cross for your sins? Because he wanted to bid what no one else could outbid. A sinless, perfect life in my place. That's the top bid. That's what you and I are worth. And it's not established based on comparing our, my life to yours. It's established based on saying, what would God pay? He placed that value. It's not the seller of an object that determines its value. It's the buyer. And the Bible is clear. This is what the Bible is about, saying God has placed that kind of value on our lives. We are God's work of art. And it's important that we understand that because we talk ourselves out of it a lot. And then you might say, okay, I get it, Rick, that's good. Uh, You know, it's by grace, which doesn't fit in our brain because we're very mathematic thinkers. And, you know, there's no way you could transact grace. There's nothing you could give to get it. So that doesn't fit in my head. But I do get that I'm, I'm God's work of art. Wow, that God places this kind of value on me. So what? Well, in Ephesians 2.7, it tells us, you know, so what? It says, like, why, why did God do this? Well, and here's what it says. Because God's going to have an art show. It says, God raised us up with Christ Jesus. This is a very interesting phrase, this raised us up. Have you ever seen an, an incredible work of art? You know, like, say you go to a museum somewhere, and you go, man, there's going to be, like, a really amazing work of art. You know, it's got great historic value. Like, it's just, you know, it's, like, priceless, Right? And you're not going to find it like underneath the carpet in the basement, you know, hidden in the dark. No, what do they do? They raise it up. You know, they put it on a pedestal, right? I mean, they put it, they frame it, they put lights on it, right? 
And that's what Paul is saying here. We are God's work of art. And what does God want to do with our lives? He wants to raise, he's raised us up, man. He's going to shine his light on us. And here's what he's going to do. He is going to, in order, this is his idea, uh, that he can have a show. He might show. Now, some of your translations say that God would display. Same idea, right? This, this verse basically says this. God's having an art show, and it's you. It's you. It's your house in the neighborhood. It's your desk at the office. It's your locker in school. It's you. You're God's art show. Well, what's he going to show? Well, it tells us right there. He's going to show the incomparable riches of his grace. What does that mean? It means you're going to be the nicest person anybody ever met. Like, you're going to be nice to people. But it's going to totally freak people out because if you're nice to people because you understand how nice God was to you, like, you're, you think, wow, God has placed incredible value on me. I mean, it's like nothing I can do about it. I'm going to place that kind of value on other people. It will freak people out. Because what happens when you're really nice to somebody? Like, you just do something really nice for somebody. What's the first thing they say? Huh? What about your own kids? Dad, you are an amazing dad. You are fantastic, and you look terrific. What do you say to your kids? What do you want? We have all figured out that the only reason somebody's nice to us is because they want something. They have some kind of hidden agenda. You know, they, they, you know, they offer us, a, you know, absolutely free. But you find out, no, it's not free, right? But when you do something and you're not looking to get paid back, that's called grace. People don't know how to handle it. Like my neighbor uh, was gone on vacation and, and he mows his own lawn, so do I. And so he, he apparently forgot or he was just thinking, ah, I'll mow it when I get home. So I thought, well, you know, his lawn's getting all long, so I just kept going. You know, after I mowed my lawn, I just you know, went over to his place and mowed his lawn. You know, and I thought, how cool when you come home from vacation and you think, okay, when I get home, i got to mow the lawn. And all of a sudden you pull in your lawn's mowed, right? Well, I thought he'd just be excited. He comes over and he goes, what? Great. Uh, what do you want me to do now? You know, because uh, he's thinking like, you know, you did something for me. Now i got to wait and do something for you so we're even. That's what his thinking was. I mean, we all have that tendency, like, great, I got a Christmas card from them. I didn't send them one. You know, we're all thinking, transaction. And grace is not a transaction. It's not a work of math. It's a work of art. And when you are nice to people, kind, you show the, the riches of the kindness of God's grace. That's why the Bible says it's very difficult to find an opportunity to do that. And so, you know, The Bible teaches us, try to find somebody to be nice to who can't repay you. That's grace. When you show grace or goodness or kindness or help to somebody when they're in absolutely no position to be able to repay you, now you're talking. Now that's God at work. That's that's an art show right there. So we look for opportunities to do that. We, you know, that's why it's so amazing. Like, you know, Monica just got back yesterday from Mexico, you know, working with those kids. Um, we've been involved with her, you know, in that orphanage so that, like, some of the kids who are two are, like, 20 now or whatever. And just, you know, they're just, they're not in a position to return the favor, and that's not why we're doing it, right? We're just reflecting the, the, the incredible riches of God's grace to us. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, This is the kindness that that God does through us. And God is kind to Huntington Beach because of you. You are God's art show. 
And when people cross paths with you, they, after a while, they can't explain, like, why you're so, you, you know, like, I have no explanation. And the only explanation is God. I mean, I experienced, it's like, a cool moment yesterday. Like, I don't even know who this was, but it was like, you know, Huntington Beach kindness moment. Like, I, I was going to park down at the beach down there to watch the sunset, you know, last night. And uh, all the parking spots are taken. All of a sudden, this guy's pulling out. So, hey, cool. I wait for him to pull out. I pull the car in. And he gets out of his car and comes over. And I'm thinking, did I pull in correctly? Is this, you know, is there an issue here, you know? And, uh, and he goes, hey, man, I paid for two hours too much, so here's my ticket to put in my window. I was like, thank you. I'm like, I love this place. You know, like, I was like, <laughs> I mean... You know, it's just some guy, you know, and he wasn't saying, so what are you going to give me for it or anything? He was just saying, hey, you know, I have something to share. You want it. It was like a pretty cool thing. That's an example to me, of, you know, and you, you can imagine that's last night and I'm already thinking about this kind of stuff today. I think, wow, this is pretty cool. This is, uh, this is what uh, it's supposed to be like. That's why people say like, man, I can't believe I'm part of this community because I'm not, you know, I'm not you know, loving people so, so I can get something. I'm just, we're just all expressing that we are God's work of art. And we're displaying his kindness. So the thing is that, I guess one takeaway this morning would be, as I mentioned, um, you're not a problem. You're not a problem. God's not here to solve you. You are a project and God's here to shape you and to create something and to, and to put you on display and to demonstrate his grace in your life to others. The other thing is that uh, uh, it's interesting to ask yourself, now maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, I'm not sure I buy this thing about me being, you know, like a work of art, you know, I feel a lot more like a problem. Well, I had an experience once where somebody showed me uh, an incredible um, work of art, and they had a home, a magnificent home, and in their home they had an original Rembrandt, and even though their home was worth, you know, a lot of money, the Rembrandt in their house was worth more than the house, and you know, and I, I thought, wow, what an amazing deal, you know. And, and the reason is that, first of all, it's Rembrandt. You know, he's big stick in the art world, right? I mean, most of us know Rembrandt, you know, the great Dutch artist. He, uh, you know, he, he, he did things with light that were amazing, and people are still stunned, you know, with his work. Um, even his school is famous, anybody from the Rembrandt school. So there's that. And then the second thing, this was an original. So there's two things when it comes to art and you think about the incredible value of art, you have to ask yourself, who's the artist and isn't an original? Well, you know what the Bible says? Hey, God made Rembrandt, right? Rembrandt did some cool stuff. God made him. You know, Rembrandt used art. God made light, you know, and Rembrandt used his light, right? So you got to realize that you and I are, we're, we're, we are God's work of art. The artist of greatest distinction who spoke, and it was, from nothing into something. That kind of creative ability. We're God's work of art. And then, guess what? You're an original. Uh, we know that. Like, you're an original work of the artist of great distinction. And yet, we do live in a world where, you know, we flip through the magazines and we think, well, I'm not that. I'm not that. You know, and it's pretty easy to talk ourselves out of what this incredible uh, chapter to the church in Ephesus says. Because we, we've decided that to be human means to be, um, you know, productive. To be able to do something, you know, not just be something. And, uh, and so that's why when we see uh, an example that 
defies that. It's very difficult. It's like trying to find our you know, favorite uh, color between 1 and 10. It's just like it, it, it doesn't fit. And I, I heard this happen just last week. There's a guy named Jean Vanier, and many of you have heard of this guy maybe, but uh, several decades ago, he started a movement called the L'Arche Communities. And L'Arche Communities are homes where uh, physically and mentally handicapped people live. Now, we have four L'Arche Communities in the city that I live in. They're all over the world. He still lives in the original house that he, that he uh, lived in in France when he started it. And um, one of the things he was saying just a couple weeks ago as I was listening to him is he said um, there was a woman who lived in one of these uh, homes, one of these communities, and she was blind and deaf and uh, advanced in years and um, and completely dependent on the people there. Uh, They had to feed her, uh, you know, uh, clean her, help her. And somebody said to him, um, why do you continue to do this? I mean... You know, she can't learn anything from you. She can't hear. She can't see. Um, she, you know, she's just sort of like not, you know, she doesn't really have a purpose. So why do you keep, you know, caring for her in this community? And this is what jean said. He said, he, when the person asked him that question, he said, because I love her. I love her. And to me, she's beautiful. And you know, when he said that, He's speaking for God. And you might say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not that much. I don't contribute that much. I'm not. Guess what? He loves you. We already sang about it today. Oh, how he loves you. And he sees you as beautiful. And he's not asking you to solve something. He's asking you to express something. That's why in every church, music is such an important part. Why? Why so much music in church, right? Because music is art. And it's a time for all of us to express. It's not a solution. It's an expression. So I thought, what a cool way to end our time together. is to have the musicians come. And, and you guys can come now. And we're, we're going to sing a couple songs. And the first one is um, that God does something beautiful. And that's you. That's us. That God's doing something beautiful in Huntington Beach. It's his church. And... The second song is about his grace, and I hope that we, when we sing about grace, we don't mathematize it. You know, we don't, uh, you, know, you know, turn it into some kind of, like, transactional idea, but we realize, wow, the most creative force in the universe is grace. It's grace. It's what God, the way God dealt with us that begins to shape who we are. So... Thanks, God, for a chance to sing this together and to make this expression um, using this, the art of music uh, to reinforce what you spoke to us in your word.